Hi, I'm Dr. Trish Santos-Smith and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Lucy Scott on feline mental health. Lucy Scott is a qualified veterinarian, having graduated from Massey University in 2015 with a Bachelor of Veterinary Science. After finishing her degree, she spent six years working in a mixed animal practice. She then decided to follow her passion by gaining her membership to the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists in Veterinary Behaviour in June 2021. She now owns her own company, Veterinary Behaviour Services NZ, where she provides behaviour consultations covering a range of species and problems. Lucy is also currently doing a Master's in Clinical Animal Behaviour through the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Hi Lucy, thank you so much for joining us today. You are very welcome, quite excited to talk to you guys. (laughs) So are we. So today we're going to be talking about mental health in cats, which is a topic I'm quite interested in and I've been wanting to talk about it for quite a while now. But before we get into your area of expertise, I was wondering if you could share with us how you became interested in being a vet and how your passion for animal behaviour developed. Yeah, so I grew up in the UK and we had many, many animals, you know, everything from hamsters and gerbils to the horses and dogs and cats. And so I've always been really interested in animals. Um, In uh, 2008, my family immigrated to New Zealand. And then I realized there was a vet school just up the road um, that would be possible for me to go do a uh, competition-based semester and get into vet school. So I decided to go and give it a go and um, got in first time. And here we go was five years at Massey Vet School, mm-hmm. and then we moved to the Waikato, um, and I was doing a mixed practice role, um, and I actually went to a horse clinic, a horse clinic, uh, which was positive reinforcement-based training, and got really interested in that training style and how it really created a really engaged, motivated learner. And from there, it just escalated. I ended up just absorbing every piece of behavior. <laughs> um, CPD, workshops, um, training, everything that I, I could. And um, and I was still working as a mixed practice vet. And I went to one of the positive reinforcement trainers was doing like a, um, a careers night for teenagers. And we sat there, I was telling them about my job and after hours and how I was interested in behavior. And the behaviorist, the dog behaviorist next to me was like, you should definitely pursue that. We definitely, we need more veterinary behaviorists. <laughs> so I thought about it and I thought about it and then I got kicked by a calf and um, ended up with a head injury for eight oh. months. And I was like, I'm not really sure I like my mixed practice role. Um, maybe I should pursue this behavior thing. So that's where I went down the road and did my membership. Mm. So <laughs> that that was um, the the main trigger then, getting your head injury, and you thought this is it. This is this is a sign. <laughs> it it kind of was. It was 
I'd already I knew that there was a lot of potential in the behaviour space, and I was sort of interested in it. But it really, it was the pause from my mixed practice job, the fact that I actually paused and realised that this was not something I wanted to be doing long term, and that I really was passionate about doing behaviour um, and doing more, uh, doing the exams that I'd been sort of looking at for the last two years before, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so now, now you own your own business, uh, which is called mm-hmm. Veterinary Behaviour Services NZ. So tell us more about the services that you provide there and the animals that you work with and what a normal consultation looks like. You know, how, what do you do in a normal consultation and, and how, how long do you spend with um, the animals? So a normal consultation is about two to two and a half hours um, and I'm mobile. So I go to clients' homes and it's usually, I've got 90% probably, 95 maybe of dogs, um, five of cats. I'd really like to grow the cats. It's yeah. really valuable. And I do the occasional horse work as well um, and I want to grow that too. So it's usually we're talking fear, aggression, reactivity. Sometimes I'm talking about, I usually go over vet history and I send out a questionnaire. So I get their behavioral history as well. So we go over history. We figure out how we can manage the behaviors and prevent them from being practiced. And then how we... um, how medical conditions can um, be part of that, how we can do um, medications might help a lot of these animals. We do behaviour modification techniques and usually that involves desensitising them to whatever triggers they struggle with. Um, And then we do... Um, sometimes we do a bit of training during the sessions. Sometimes new behaviours is something that these um, animals like these skills that can um, help them when they're out and about. So it's usually, though, actually discussing the the emotional health of the animal Mm. and how we can change the emotions in a a, um, session. Yeah. And do you do any sort of online consultations as well or you just try to go to their residence? Yeah, I do actually. And it means that I can cover a lot more space so a lot of, a lot more distance because there's not many veterinary behaviorists here in New Zealand um, and actually I'm a behavior vet not a veterinary behaviorist and there is a, a definition between the two I should say is that I'm not a specialist I'm a veterinary behaviorist a specialist so there's not many behavior vets and there's no specialists now practicing in New Zealand um, so but zooms sorry yeah zooms mean that I can cover people that are further away and help them. The only difference is that I can't do in-person training mm-hmm. and I can't do um, prescriptions through telehealth. But usually it means that we can get them on the right path with, and they can, um, they've got the support of a good veterinarian and sometimes the use um, a really good trainer as well um, really helps these people get on the right path with their animals. Yeah. And, and for those clients as well, then um, do you work together with their GP as well, with their regular vet yeah. to, yeah. so they know what's, what's going on and if they need to prescribe any medications? 
Yeah, all of my reports, even like all of the animals that I see, I include the veterinarian in the conversation because I'm I might be short term. I might just be helping them with this behaviour problem, and they need to. And if I do any medications, of course, the veterinarian needs to be involved in that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Definitely. So you've um, touched on it briefly just now, how you use positive reinforcement. And I know that you also use like fear-free principles. Why are these, you know, so important for you to use and and for the pet well-being as well? Yeah. So positive reinforcement, positive means addition. So addition reinforcement. So positive reinforcement means that we're adding something that rewards behavior. Um, instead of focusing on the how do we stop a behavior, we tend to then shift to using positive reinforcement to what can we reward instead? What's an alternative behavior that works better for the animal? A really good example, dogs, is jumping up. We we re- we reward sitting instead, or even just um, waiting by the on a mat by the door, so they're not rushing somebody at the door. And that alternative behaviour becomes stronger through reward-based training. And usually, that means that we can we don't um, need to use uh, punishment-based techniques, which have got some serious fallouts for animals. Um, we're able to fear free. So fear free is uh, how we practice in the vet clinic to try and reduce the fear, anxiety and stress of our patients. So I'm really passionate about fear free principles. I think that they are the future for veterinary care. Um, being able to detect the care, the body language signs and the um, signs of anxiety of a patient means safety mm-hmm. for clients and for patients and for vets mm-hmm. and staff, of Absolutely. course. Um, <laughs> that's what we want. Uh, so that's the really big part. But also making sure that the behavior that they're showing doesn't escalate in the future. So we we all know the dog that comes in for the first time and has a waggy tail and the second time its tail is a little bit lower and the third time it, its tail is behind its legs and it's hiding in the corner. So we want to um, increase their confidence in the clinic and change that to wanting to come into the clinic and being easier to handle each time. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And um, sorry, just going back to, to the positive reinforcement as well, in theory it's great, but I, th- I think it's harder for pet owners to implement that. So, for example, you were giving the um, the example of the you know dogs jumping up and down and it's very common for pet owners to just praise them and go, oh, you know, that's so Mm. cute. And how difficult is it to change the pet owner's behaviour? Yeah, so 90% of my job is actually teaching humans how to teach their pets, right? So so I like to talk about the different ways that we can reinforce or punish behaviour, right? So when you reinforce a behaviour, it happens more likely in the future. And when you punish a behaviour, it becomes less likely in the future. There are huge problems with punishment-based techniques. So an example would be jumping up, right, is if you growl at the dog or kick out at the dog, instead the dog will start avoiding you. Mm. Um, The dog may show signs of aggression. Um, The dog might not want to become when they're called. So it has serious fallouts to our relationship with the animals. So, yeah, teaching the human how best to help their animal modulate their behavior is the big key there, yeah. 
So um, I suppose focusing now on the uh, main topic of, of the podcast, um, specific to feline behaviour, what seems to be the most common concerns you're presented with? I know you said only about 5% of um, your clients come to you with cats, but what do you yeah. usually see? Um, I say that, but actually thinking about it, I often have cat and dog problems. <laughs> so dog is chasing cat. Right, okay, cat both. Mm-hmm. the dog. So yeah, actually, no, it, it would probably be more. Um, but cat owning problems into cat aggression, cat to human aggression, uh, spraying, toileting issues. Um, um, I'd like to say, like, scratching and things like that, or which I... Uh, normal behaviours for cats that could be a problem for us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, into cat aggression has probably been my biggest one so far. Right. Mm. Okay. I think uh, a big part of the issues you probably see with cats, uh, into cat issues, and can be related to um, stress and fear. Um, mm-hmm. So, what are sort of the signs? that, you know, a pet owner should be looking for? I mean, some of them are quite obvious where they, you know, get quite distressed, but that a cat might be stressed and and trying to pinpoint what that trigger is. So we have we have medical things. We have uh, inappropriate toileting in places they don't normally. We've got blood in the urine, so cystitis. We've got, um, I don't know, the block bladder type things that cats can get. Um, so there's medical things that we often, the, the thing that we see last, um, signs of stress in the home, hiding is a really big one, um, not being, not showing play or affiliative behaviours. So play is a really good um, uh, welfare indicator that they are happy and comfortable in their environment. Um, we've got spraying is mm-hmm. a really big sign of stress in cats. Um, you don't stra- spray in your home unless you're really insecure about something. Um, things like uh, avoiding of hands if, they, you know, a lot of cats don't like to be handled and um, that is a sign that they're uncomfortable if they're avoiding you. Cats are good at just walking away when they're not happy. But for the, for a pet owner, you know, the cat might be, let's say, tolerating it. What are the signs that the pet owner can pick up on that the cat doesn't like to have, let's say, its belly rubbed? One would be a tail twitch. So that is a first sign that they're, unco- they're uncomfortable. Um, watch the ears. If the ears go backwards or flat against the head. Um, if they... Yeah, walking away is actually a really big one that humans don't pick up on. Is actually they mm. they um, yeah, they're actually saying I'm really uncomfortable, guys. Yeah. I'm going to walk off now. They're just removing um, themselves from the situation. Or aggression. Like people go, it came out of nowhere. He scratched my hand, and I go, well, actually, he was probably showing signs. 10, 15 seconds before that he was uncomfortable and that he wanted you to stop. And some of those signs might be just as soon as, you know, looking away, um, licking their lips is a sign of stress as well sometimes. Obviously, if they've just eaten, then that's not something. But um, licking their lips is a a sign that they're not comfortable with the situation. Um, The cowering and hiding is a really big one um, that they don't want to engage with people. 
And I know it might not be easy, but if they are showing signs that they're, you know, unhappy and stressed and anxious, what are ways that the pet owners can sort of work out what is causing those signs? That would be really dependent on the environment. And we'd have to dig down in the environment what sort of possible stressful triggers would be in the environment. Um, I, for example, the other day I was talking to a client whose cat was scared of footsteps. And we were going, well, was there... Was, how do they respond to strangers in the home? And that was really important is that they don't like strangers coming into the home or hide. So that was quite a big stressor for those cats. Um, if you are, if we're wondering about intercat aggression and conflict, uh, the first sign actually is, is that they're staring at each other. That's quite a big thing that they actually are being quite uncomfortable with each other as they're being quite aggressive is, is the staring is the first sign. Fighting is like the last straw. It's, it, there is um, staring, interrupting, uh, stopping cats for other cats from going to resources, um, just sitting in front of the doorway or the hallway so that the other cat can't move around the house freely. Right. Those are actually really big signs that, that there is something going on between the cats and the home. Right. And and then we've touched on that, like you said, that they can become aggressive quite quickly and, and that's a sign. Is there like a specific sign that would say this cat is just going to go from anxious to scratching or biting you? I think every cat is different and every cat will tolerate different levels. But the tail flicking is probably my number one sign that they, are, that they don't want to be touched at the moment. So you just got to move away. <laughs> you see that? Yeah. And touch a cat that's got, that's twitching its tail. Yeah. And what yeah. about um, vocalization? Do they tend to use that quite a lot? Um, sometimes they'll growl, but again, it depends on the cat. Some cats, a growl is usually quite a, a strong sign. Um, if we're talking early signs, we want to make sure that that, that a growl is is the last option before a bite or a scratch. I don't know, I have a, a a feeling that when you're sort of, you know, visiting dogs and dealing with their behaviour issues, that sometimes it might be more obvious than with cats. Do you find that it takes longer or it takes more consults to try to help a cat and manage whatever is going on that's causing the stress in the house? I I don't think it takes longer to solve the issues, but I, because often um, environmental changes are really big and they're really usually fairly easy to help the cat with. Once we set up the environment, often the stress is reduced and we can um, move on to desensitizing or counter conditioning to if we're talking about into cat aggression, the other cat. Um, but it sometimes takes a long time for us to pick up that their cats are uncomfortable. I mean, to us, staring is not something that we should be paying attention to mm. often. So it may well be that we I'm only coming in when the two cats are, are full on fighting um, or I come in when somebody has been toileting um, outside of the cat trail for quite a bit. Yeah. And then I suppose are there any breeds or, or- type of cats in certain environments that would be 
more predisposed to to stress and anxiety. I suppose if there there are other cats in the household, um, that can be more likely to happen. But there, is there anything else that can predispose them to to be more anxious? Yeah, so behaviour components comes up with genetics. So uh, definitely as a genetic component to behaviour um, and then learnt behaviour uh, and um, history. So learnt history is a really important part of that too. Um, so, yeah, there is definitely a genetic component. I definitely have like lines of cats usually that are more anxious than others. So not necessarily breeds, but definitely lines of cats in those breeds that that are more sensitive or more anxious. Um, Bengals, which are part wild cat, like Mm -hmm. more wild cat than our cats, they they can be quite intense in their behaviour and they are usually um, roam long distances and much more likely to to fight other cats. Yeah, right. but they're so beautiful. <laughs> oh no, aren't they beautiful? <laughs> they, are. they are. I love them. Yeah, they they need a lot of enrichment. They need a lot of um, brain um, engagement. Bengals, for sure. What's the best thing the pet owners can do for? Um, I mean, cats in general, but cats that might be more predisposed to behavioural concerns. How can they? I don't know, recognise the signs, build a stronger bond um, with these cats to sort of prevent issues in the future? So the biggest thing for cats is setting up a environment that suits them. Um, so I've got the five pillars of feline environment and um, is really important. So there's making sure they have safe places. They like to be up high and being able to actually avoid um, interactions with cats dogs, other people if they feel like it. Um, And then we have having their own resources. So the rule for, for example, cat litter trays is uh, the number of cats plus one. So make sure that you've got more resources than you have cats and in separate areas. I've got into a you know, into a client's home and they go, yep, we've got three cat litter trays. And they go in and they're all in one spot. That's Uh one toilet (laughs) for four cats. In that case, so that's there's not enough toilets for those cats. They need to be separated, um, and resources include toys, food, water, um, scratching posts, as well as the toileting area. Right. And we have also have um, ensuring that they actually can practice their play and predatory behaviour. It's really important to cats. My little guy, he loves his puzzle toy that is a slow feeder. Uh-huh. So he gets that. And he also occasionally goes on a hunt around the house for food. Um, and I also use food, which is the next part, which is making sure we have a, he gets positively reinforced to in training sessions. So we have a, a um, clicker training session and he gets to be rewarded with food. And so we have – that is a really good way to bond with your cat. Mm-hmm. Um and last one is that cats have a really strong sense of smell. So if you bring in, if you have a stranger come into the house, they bring their shoes into the house. Okay, that's actually really important to cats is that they um, new smells in their home can make them quite stressed and can make them quite anxious about you know, these new things being introduced. There was a, a cartoon, which was a joke, which was um, 
oh, man, you look tired, which is one cat. So the other said, yeah, my human brought home the shopping and I had to check out all 13 bags of food shopping. <laughs> like, yeah, it was stressful to him. He had to go and smell it all because it was all new to him and introducing smells into cats' homes is something that we should be aware of. Right. That might cause a little extra stress in a slightly anxious cat that could be more stressful for them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good to have on uh, having your mind um, when bringing. I know my cat. Yeah, as soon as I bring the shopping in, he's like all over it, yep. trying to smell everything. <laughs> Got to check it out. Got to check it out. All these new smells in the house. Yep. <laughs> uh, so just quickly going back to the stimulation, and I, I think this is a question for me too because I have an indoor cat, and you did mention you know doing some training, but. Um, what are some other ways that they can be stimulated with play or 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 sort of like hunting behavior when they're indoors? And especially, I suppose, if people have like a sort of like a small, they're in a small apartment or area, what what are some of um, things they can do? So you have social play, so that would be with you, and that could and and that is one thing. But then you can also get the give them things to play and hunt with by themselves. So those puzzle toys, um, we talk about snuffle mats for dogs, and they're not used enough for cats, but I think they really benefit from that. Um, the, there's lots of now lots of puzzle toys where they have to just like dug, dig around to, to and move things to be able to get to the food, and those are really good. Um, all sorts of interactive toys. I don't recommend laser toys. Because right, that okay. it has an element of frustration in it. They can't. They don't actually get any benefit. The hunting. Yeah. They don't complete the hunting sequence. They don't get the thing at the end. Um, and I see some sort of obsessive compulsive disorders where they they they're chasing lights and not actually and being so um, focused on those things instead of actually um, exploring the environment and being normal cats. Yeah, right. And like you said, there's no satisfaction if they can't get something at the end. Yeah, yeah that's a good. Because yeah. they're becoming quite popular, those laser laser mm-hmm. toys as well. Yeah. And so you've mentioned it before too, but there there's some medical conditions that can develop from cats that are stress. Um, so can you go over the, the most sort of common ones uh, that you see and that usually need addressing? when you're managing sort of the, the the problems and the stress? Yeah. So usually we have like urinary problems are the biggest issue. So in tom cats, we can get blocked bladders when they form crystals. Um, we can also get inflammation of the bladder um, and that can happen in girls as well. And then we tend to see blood in the urine. Um, those are the main ones. Uh, and it may well be that we see those signs and we don't have a um, urinary tract infection or even crystals in the urine, um, and that is often in response to stress. And I suppose that's that's not necessarily something that you know pet owners would be familiar with. Yeah. Oh, and gut, gut issues 
Um, gut issues are of course, sort of chronic sort of diarrhea or chronic constipation. Those are things that we can actually address and help. Um, and any sort of medical condition tends to lower your threshold of things that you can cope with in the day. You all know when you've got a niggling painful thing and you just cannot deal with the same amount of stuff that you could do in the day. Cats are the same and um, so are dogs. Is that if you have a painful condition, so arthritis is also a really mm. big thing in cats. Um, it's just my sorry, my cats just jumped up on my lap. <laughs> Thanks, mate. They do. Good distraction. Um, well, what was I saying? Yeah, arthritis is a really big condition in cats, and we tend to start just seeing things like they don't want to jump as much, they don't want to play as much, um, and pain can much lower their tolerance of things. Um, and I often see aggression related to pain yeah, as well because they get quite cranky, don't they? Because they're oh, in yeah. pain. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're really good at hiding signs more than, you know, dogs. Um, it is, it, it's hard for their owners to sort of recognise. I mean, they, they just see them getting cranky, but it, it's hard to notice that, you know, they might not be jumping as high or mm. um, maybe not grooming themselves um, as much. So they, I think they're quite important things to, especially as the cats get older, um, for pet yeah. owners to sort of have in the back of their mind. Um, yeah, any under or for. over grooming is a is a signal there could be something underlying. So hmm. now, if we um, sort of move on to like managing these behavioural problems, I know with you know with dogs we try to take a multimodal approach when um, treating behavioural issues, and I assume we do the same with cats. Um, so what, what does it look like? What are the things you would sort of be addressing for a cat? Um, so absolutely medical conditions is the first thing that we just, we talk about, making sure that any pain is controlled, any issues, other issues that are resolved. Um, environmental setup is really important for cats, um, as we discussed earlier. And actually, that's often more, much more important than in dog cases because cats can be quite, um, they can get the environmental stress, stress from the environment is much more common in cats. Um, and sometimes we talk about pheromones are really helpful for stressed cats. Um, and cats in into cat conflicts. There is a pheromone um, product specifically for that. We do. I do a lot of medications. Mm-hmm. So anti-anxiety medications are becoming more and more common and, and really helpful for cats that are struggling, as well as supplements um, such as tryptophan and. Um, we don't have this in New Zealand, but I know you guys do in Australia. Is Zilkane is also mm-hmm. another one um, that we can't get here. <laughs> but yes, hopefully it won't be too long. Um, so there are sort of it's a multimodal um, approach, uh, in that those adjunctive uh, supplementations and medications can be really useful as well. But yeah, with cats, it's really often about the environmental setup. So when I go into a consult with cats, I make sure I've got a um, a, a house plan, especially for okay. Zoom ones, because it's really useful. If we get a house plan and we go, 
where are the resources? Where are the doors? Where are the sticky points? Where did you notice cats staring at each other? So actually being able to set up the environment is a really big thing for um, success in these cases. So do, do you give the pet owners sort of like a, a list of things they should have around the house for the cat or that they should change? Usually it's changing, moving things around. So say if you've got three cats and, and you were having some conflict issues and they all eat in the same place, that can be a really sort of triggering issue for some of the, the cat, one of the cats. So we tend to spread them about. Sometimes we um, add in exits and entrances. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we will add um, their own scratching post. Um, depends on what the issue is. Uh, cat litter tray is also really important, like I said earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And is there, um, I heard a while ago about the way, uh, how much litter you need to put in the litter tray and how actually big the litter trays need to be to like the cat should be able to sort of turn around easily um do you have a sort of a specific criteria that you give the pet owners how the lid what the litter tray should look like and how big it should be for for each cat yeah every cat has a different uh, lots of cats have different preferences for cat litter um but definitely not one of the scented cat litters they uh, tend to be quite aversive actually cats um, uh, cat litter trays and no cat litter, cat litter trays that you can buy in the shops tend to be big enough so they need right. to be a one and a half times the length of your cat because if you have a big cat like my fella <laughs> that's a, quite a big one so we're actually DIY cat litter trays oh, okay. so that they're you know, big enough for them um, some cats like the cover some don't some cats like clay, some cats like clumping. Um, I think actually, I think it should be covered at the bottom of the um, cat tray, maybe an inch, because you want it to be deep enough that they can scratch around in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, no plastic liners. A lot of cats, oh, okay. a, lot of, a lot of people put plastic liners in the tray and mm-hmm. cats do not like the scent, the smell of the, or the feel of them. Of the plastic. Yeah. Oh. Um, a lot of times, a really good way to tell if the cat likes the litter is if they're scratching around at it. If they're actually scratching the sides of the litter tray or outside of the litter tray, they don't want to put their paws in it and scratch at it. That's a really good way to find out. All right. Mm. And um, one more question with, I don't know if you get pet owners to change at all or if you check their diets or if they should be feeding them a different diet if that would make a difference in their behaviour? Sometimes behavior. if there's a medical condition, yeah. Yeah, that will be something that we'll talk about. Um, sometimes if if we can move them to a prescription diet, there are some prescription diets with tryptophan in them, which are quite mm-hmm. useful. Um, but, yeah, it depends on the case and the client as well. And I suppose it, it would depend on the case, but do you find like with when, when you do your first consult and you spend some time with the pet owner and the cat, do you find like the issues that you address in the first consult are enough for the pet owner to carry on forward and solve the issues or do you feel like you sort of need to go back and see how they're doing and maybe make more changes if things haven't improved? 
Oh, that really depends. Really depends on the case. Um, I do packages, so I, I my initial consult now. I've even added progress calls in there because I want to mm-hmm. make sure that they're making. Um, I don't want to go see them once and then not hear from them. Yeah. So I book in phone calls afterwards. Um, my biggest package is a three month package, so I see them once a month for three months, and it really depends on the case, case by case, and yeah, how well the animal is doing after the initial consultation mm. and and do you find that by making those initial changes they usually see quite a positive response pretty quickly with cats it can be really it can be within a couple of weeks that we see big differences yeah and is it different yeah. with with dogs uh, it depends on the case so Hmm. Yes and no. <laughs> case by case. Uh, it, it's really depending on the case. So I'll say depending on the problem, sometimes if I'm dealing with um, in, in-house aggression, the first consultation is just how do we prevent this from happening again? Mm-hmm. How do, What are the triggers? How do we um, make sure everybody feels safe? And then the next one might, and and it might also be muzzle training as well. So those management tools. The next one might be starting some desensitizing to the other dog and starting to reintroduce them. Um, usually, those management tools don't one hundred percent go away, but we start to mm-hmm. um, you know get more confident that they're comfortable around each other. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know whether I really answered your question, to be honest. That's all right. That's all right. Um, and I had one more question too with like medication and like you mentioned um, supplements uh, like tryptophan. Do you find that you it's beneficial to start them with that and have them sort of on that long term or is it something you can, um, once you've taken your multimodal approach, you can wean them off? Great question. So... Depending on the case, some animals will be on those supplementations forever or those medications forever if they're benefiting. And often we'll try and wean them and we'll go, oh, no, no, he was definitely benefiting from that and put them back on. Um, And I have had that before where people go, oh, it doesn't seem to be working. I'm just, I'm going to take them off and then we'll go on to a medication or or it will change it in a couple of weeks because we usually need a break between. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they'll go, oh, no, it was definitely making a difference. And they just didn't see it. Um, I don't do medications or any of the supplementals without a proper behavior modification plan. Yeah, I think um, I think there is a lot of um, thinking that it's going to fix something. And it's just an adjunctive that helps you with the behavior modification plan. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Lucy. That was fantastic and and so interesting. And um, I think there's some great tips there to, you know, help vets and pet owners with dealing with these behavioral issues in in cats. Um, is, Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to share with us? to be honest. No, I had a great talk talk with you. Thank you. Oh, great. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for being a guest on the Pure Animal podcast. Um, If people do want to get in touch with you, um, what's the best way for them to contact you? 
Uh, you can find me at vetbehaviour.co.nz and my email address is lucy at vetbehaviour.co.nz and you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram as well. So it's Veterinary Behaviour Services NZ. Great. Well, thank you so much, Lucy, for your time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you very much too. This was the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Trish Santos-Smith. If you enjoyed our chat with Dr. Lucy Scott, then please feel free to jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and review. 